1: Hello and welcome to From the Rookery End, a Watford podcast brought to you by The Athletic. My name is John. With me on this Sunday, after Watford losing 1-0 away at Reading yesterday, is Mike.
2: Uh, Good first half. Not so great second half. Uh, We'll be better in a couple of weeks. Thanks for (laughs) listening. (laughs) Well,
1: let's talk about some detail of that one, uh, shall we, Michael, to make an interesting podcast. And we are joined by the Brigadier, Colin Mace.
3: Good afternoon.
1: Let's get down to it, boys. The beginning of the game was energetic. It came down to a youthful side. Two players up front with a combined age of 40. So therefore, put them both together, they're younger than us. Um, <laughs> that's how young they are. Uh, and there's one of the midfield with Tom Delibishiru starting. Garner, Tom Delibishiru and Nathaniel Chalabar, who isn't particularly old yet, even after all these years. It was a young team. It was energetic, Mike. It was a great start, wasn't it? It was great yeah it was the first time
2: really this season that we've seen Watford come out of the blocks like that wasn't it we've we've lamented really over the the matches this season how Watford have started the game quite slowly and haven't really imposed themselves on the opposition until until later in the game well this was the the complete opposite wasn't it i think i don't know whether that was down to their younger legs or the fact that we knew reading had had got off to a good start 3 and 3 unfortunately 4 in 4 now for them um but yeah it was a really exciting start and i thought I was speaking to my, to my dad and mum this morning, sort of running through the game. And I thought, I felt very, very comfortable very, very early. We were making all the running. We saw some really nice football. Probably, I would say in that first half, some of the nicest football we've seen from Watford all season. Um, So, yeah, it was all looking very, very, very positive. We we were making space down the left. We were getting a lot of good ball in the middle. We were creating the, the occasional chance. The keeper didn't have loads to do, but it felt initially... Um, like it was just a matter of time before before we scored. Unfortunately, you know, Did Ghana hit the hit the bar, um, and Gakia skewed one wide. Uh, Ismail Assar possibly could have done better when he when he hit the hit the um, side netting. But all of them pointed towards they were going to have a good good impact on on the game. And yeah, like I say, it felt like it was only going to be a matter of time. But I should have known better. We know football never works out like that, don't we?
1: Especially when it comes to Watford. But Colin, the, for me, the turning moment came uh, on the thirty seventh minute. Um, there was a, a nasty bending of the knee for Tom bashiru, uh, and he was eventually taken off after sort of uh, looking like he was going to con- continue on. He was playing fantastic. He was imposing himself uh, as part of that young, youthful looking Watford side. And then Ken Semmer came on and that wasn't quite what I would have expected.
3: Well, I guess you've got to do a bit of in-game planning, haven't you? And Ivic seems to be—he uh, had a—he had a reason for bringing Semer on, which was that it was after, as you say, after thirty-seven minutes. It was really unfortunate that you know, Bashira picked up that injury because he—he went down. He went—I un- think his left leg went right under him, which is, you know, horrible. Anyway, he got up and he seemed to be doing okay. And then suddenly, uh, down by the byline, the, uh, you know, the, the Reading, on the Reading goal line, he suddenly sort of turned quickly and he just sort of went, you could see his whole body kind of react oh, to yes. it's obviously quite a sharp pain. He turned around and then he sat down and then he thought, OK, well, he's, 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 run, his, he's run his game, which was a shame, as you say, John, because... He seemed to be the most dynamic of the three and, and that is really his role. Chalabar seems to be sitting a lot deeper playing in front of the back three and, and uh, Garner is sort of kind of playing alongside him. But um, deli Bashir seemed to be the kind of the, the dynamo in that midfield three and he was, he was really... Um, I was saying to you earlier, um, John. He, he seems to have this ability, Bashiru. In he, he doesn't fly into tackles. He doesn't he doesn't sort of get up in the opposition's face. He's not like a sort of uh, Valon Barami type figure. But what he is what he is doing is he's he seems to know where he needs to be, and that's mm. that's something yeah. that you can't coach into a player. He seems to have this instinct for closing down opposition space, getting into the uh, cutting off the supply to the forward line, and then when he gets the ball. And we saw this, let's not forget, he had to come on as a substitute uh, against Luton when Chalabar went off. And it was at a very sort of difficult moment in the game. We were 1 0 up, and you felt Luton might just take advantage of a, of a forced substitution like that. But he came on, and again, he did exactly the same thing. He was excellently pushed Luton back, and we were able to hold on. And he was doing the same thing. And in a way, a lot of uh, what was uh, Mike's just mentioned about those three chances was kind of coming through his dynamism. But as you say, he went off, and Sema didn't start, nor did Cleverly. Because they, uh, we were told, they both had little muscle niggles uh, from training during the week. He, he also had Queener on the bench. You thought, well, maybe he'll he'll bring on Queener for Delhi Bashira. But he he decided after 37 minutes it was too early for Cleverly. He brought on Semmer, clearly knowing, and okay, hindsight is 2020, 20, but clearly knowing that he had the opportunity to take Firminia off, who hasn't played very many minutes this this season, and he could bring on Cleverly for Firminia, and then Sema could go over and play a more normal role for him, which is wide. Uh, out on the left, and uh, that seemed to be his thinking. But it did slightly take that dynamic aspect mm-hmm. of our midfield out of our play. And I don't think we ever really quite recovered from that moment because th- six minutes or four minutes later, we know what happened.
2: I don't think we can overplay how good Deli Bashiri was. And you're right to reference the Luton game, Cole, because when he came on, you think, oh, crikey, you know, this is this is going to be backs to the wall a little bit here. They might, because Chalabar played really well against Luton, didn't he? And I thought him coming off was... Could have been difficult, but he slipped into that. He slotted into that that role so perfectly, didn't he? And, and you're right. He has this innate footballing intelligence and ability that he could. You, you if to look at him, you'd think he'd played a hundred Premier League matches or a hundred ch- Championship matches. And you it's just, it's just there. He's just got it. And you're right. Everything flowed through him. And I think that it was visible, wasn't it? That the that the change was almost immediate when he came off. It knocked us out of our stride. The shape was obviously had to be slightly different. And you had a player in there that couldn't do what. What he was doing, and almost immediately, you know, they they, they had a, ch- a shot, didn't they? A couple of minutes before, and then they got the goal, and we we just didn't recover from it. Um, and I think I think you're right. He was obviously protecting cleverly because he's aware um, that 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 central midfield role is is going to be so important for us as the as the season goes on. Um, so he was obviously protecting cleverly. Scooting forward a little bit when Cleverly did come on, he—I don't think he got hold of the game as much at all as he has done in previous games. So that really was the turning point for me. It, it just changed the whole, the whole dynamic of the of the performance, the whole dynamic of the day. And we we got, went from being completely on the on the front foot to going behind. And my first thought was, when we go behind, right, this is going to be interesting to see what what we what we do here because our whole sort of mo so far has been get ahead, stay ahead, shut down the game. Um, and we were all of a sudden in a situation where, against the run of play, we were going to have to do something we haven't done all season in the league. And um, yeah, it was slightly disappointing the, the the way we reacted. I thought I thought the the heads didn't go. That was unfair. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't a dreadful performance, but they just didn't. They sort of lacked a little bit of wit and nouse and know how to to unlock Reading, who were prepared to to sit deep and just sort of make it difficult for us. I thought you mentioned Femenier. Um, Colin, I thought he, he did well down the left and I can see why he 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 stayed on. I thought he actually, you know, initially we thought it's a more of a, a defensive move having Kiko on the left instead of instead of Ken. But but he actually I thought got well really, really nicely and was probably our our best outlet throughout the whole game. Um, he popped up down the left, didn't he? Throughout the second half, a fair, a fair bit uh, didn't wasn't able to get anything worthwhile going. But yeah, that was that was the turning point, and it was um, it was a disappointing afternoon after that, wasn't it?
1: The unlocking things though, Colin, I think there's two things that 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 that, you know, that moment where Cleverly didn't come on. It sort of showed that there is a lack still of players to choose from. Uh, that might be down to transfer window, it might be down to injury. So we are going to have this frailty and and very sensibly uh on the last podcast, Adam was uh trying to make us not get ahead of ourselves after just a one 0 win against against Luton. But it's that particularly lacking front line. Now maybe the substitutions might have come a bit earlier, you know, because Tom Delibus would have played the whole game and we would have had a another substitute and 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 Glenn Murray didn't come on for until very, very, very late. But those two up front, you know, João Pedro and Ishmael Azar, who have combined, had less birthdays than all of us. Um, let's just be Certainly clear, on less that. than me. John. Yes.
3: <laughs> well, look, the thing is, John, when you, when you've got young players in, in a side, and you've, we've got a lot of young players. Okay, the back line with Foster, Cathcart, and Cabaselli is an ex, uh, ex, three experienced players, but pretty much everyone else from the midfield three. Uh, Chalabar being the oldest, and I think he's only 24, and then through Sam, Pedro. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of young players there. And then one of the things, I know it's a terrible old footballing cliche, but one of the things everyone says and everyone knows to be true is that when you've got a lot of young players in your side, they will be inconsistent. And what happened yesterday was that both Pedro, Pedro couldn't really cope with the, he didn't seem to get enough of the ball. He kept coming short, which we don't really want him to do. You don't really want your number nine or your false nine or whatever he is to come short. But he he didn't really get him into the game. And 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 Sarr just had a bit of an indifferent game, which is perfectly acceptable when you consider that there there, there's so much speculation around him Uh, that his head must be slightly spinning. he must be on the phone a lot to his agents, his family, and and having meetings with the club. And so, you know, at a time of such incredible uncertainty for him in terms of his short-term, medium-term and long-term future... You can't expect him to come out like a greyhound out of the slips and, and be the best player on the park. And he he just had a a little bit of an off day. He his he got a bit frustrated. He'd lost the ball a few times. The passes into him weren't necessarily great at times. And we just I, I was really hoping in the second half, despite everything we said about Bashir going off, one player going off shouldn't really destabilise. Uh, aside, but it, it not, we weren't destabilized, but we suddenly lost that kind of ability to impose ourselves. And, and I expected us to come out in the second half and make a bit more of a, a go for it, like we had at the beginning of the first half. And actually, we worse weren't able to. And Pedro was getting no change out of their back line, he wasn't really getting in behind, but he wasn't taking up a good position with his back to goal. And, and Saar wasn't getting around the corner. I mean, our, the, I thought Mangacchio um, had another excellent performance, but. You know, as a a side, we just seemed to run out of steam. And I don't think it was fitness. I think it was just a bit of frustration and a bit of... They kind of out-Watforded us, didn't they? I mean, we've done that to teams. We did it to Luton. We did it to Middlesbrough. They sat back. They were very compact. They were very confident uh, as the game uh, uh, sort of wore on. And we were just unable to really get through them and get on top of them and and really create any chances.
2: I don't think it was fitness. and, And I also, I think we're right to point out it's a young team, but I also don't think that that's... That's the issue at all. I think. I think the thing that we're we're missing is neither of those guys is a is really is a number nine. It's a, no, is a no. through the middle striker. We've got two guys who have probably been deployed in ways that they we know they can play, but it's not there. It's probably not the reason they were, they were bought in the in the first place. You know, you'd you'd, you'd fancy them. With a with a number nine alongside them, either of them would have a more fruitful afternoon. Colin, it was an interesting that you know the the balls. I thought in second half the ball retention was dreadful. I thought there was far too many misplaced passes, over hit, under hit just misdirected i thought that was that was and i th- i wonder if that was telling whether whether pedro and and sar just weren't getting in the right positions or weren't getting or whether the the midfield or the people making those passes weren't necessarily trusting the fact that the ball was going to going to hold up a whole number of things but i think it all stems from the fact that ultimately there isn't and there wasn't a number 9 a true number nine on the pitch. Troy Deeney still recovering from, from his injury. Andre Gray is, is recovering from injury after looking good against Tottenham. Parica has looked good, I think, for this level in, in, his, in his first couple of matches and stupidly got sent off. So he's still serving his ban. And obviously, Glenn Murray haven't quite worked out whether he's he's not fully fit or whether Rivic knows quite how, how best to, to deploy him. So on if you look at it, look at our forward options. Pedro, Saar, Parica, Andre Gray, Troy Deeney and Glenn Murray, there is is a a wealth of attacking options. A wealth, you know, it's all all relative, but there is ways we can mix and match with that lot to ask questions of defences in different ways if they're all fit. But as it stands... There's there's not much not much to go at, is there? So I think it goes back again to us not having our first strength eleven available to us yesterday. Really it's been the case one way or another throughout throughout the season so far. So there's a lot still a lot of moving parts still not quite slotting into, you know, tab A into into slot B it isn't quite happening just yet, is it? And when it comes to the team as a as a whole. And I think that's what cost us yesterday was the lack of lack of uh of, of some number nine. I think if perizzo could have could have come on perhaps for example, he can hold the ball up you've got then got either Pe- pedro or sar spinning off and and they they're allowed to do a little bit of their their wizardry which which suits them better and i think we we lacked that yesterday i think that was the the biggest thing for me because you just you just you need you need a target you need someone who can ask questions of the defence and i thought in the first half Shmela sar in particular had the had the best of it he sort of had, had good runs down the right he had, he was making hay down there he switched across and was asking questions that down the, down the left down through the middle but it just didn't happen in the in the second half, and I think you're right they both got frustrated as they're prone to do because that's when the when their age does come into it, and the experience they'll both be wanting to make an impact. You know what you're like as a kid, you want everything to happen as quickly as possible as often as possible, and I don't mind that that's just that's what what good hungry footballers should be. they should be getting frustrated when things don't go their way, but we really, really lacked a classic striker yesterday, and I think that's where where we come and start.
3: What surprised me about it was that um, that he brought Murray on at 82 minutes, which seems a little bit late. It was, you, you really... It's got to, Something extraordinary has got to happen for a, a player to come on and really make a, an impact with only eight minutes to go. But what surprised me more, really, was that he took Saar off and actually he had the option of taking off Wilmot or one of the one of the three centre-backs and leaving Saar on the pitch and going to a kind of 4-3-3 situation with Saar on one side, Pedro sort of supporting Murray. But, uh, but he chose to take Saar off and, and if you're chasing a one niller that seemed slightly cautious to my. I mind. think he
2: would shot his bolt, Col. I think he taught it. Yeah, yeah, I think he he looked frustrated, and then he just before he got as well, yeah yeah just before he got substitute, the ball came across to him on the on the right flank, and he miscontrolled it or missed it completely, and it went out for a throw in, and his just head head dropped, and he thought, you know he's he's whether it's mentally or or physically, whichever it was, he wasn't. You weren't going to get the Saar that we that we expect someone to pay fifty million for at that stage. So, but but the thing I think the big question is Murray. What you're
3: talking about, Mike, is if you're if you're going to play a big number nine or a number nine, be it a Gray, Dini, Murray or Paritza, is he going to change that formation? Because if you if you play a centre forward, um, then you're going to have to try and get support to that player. And having Saar, who mostly just plays out on the right, or Pedro, you've got to have. You got. You might have to go to four at the back in order to make that work. And I don't know. He seems very wedded to this back three, and it's worked for us. We know we've only conceded one goal. But when you need to, when you're behind like we were, and you need to turn it on and get more bodies in the box and put those centre backs under more pressure, will he change that system or will he just go like for like? I don't know.
1: Well, it's interesting. We'll see what happens. But you know, you say that defensive lines and get one goal in. It took Pushkus to beat us.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it's not quite the same thing but
3: no it's a good goal it's a
2: goal. well taken goal a big deflection a bit annoying I was, I was disproportionately annoyed that we've let a goal in I had these dreams of us going <laughs> all season without, uh, without letting a goal in and when it went in it was ugh. It was, there, there goes that
1: ridiculous dream but there you go so we're not blaming anybody particularly there's lots of things that, that, sort of, that go on so why do people seem to be focused on Nathaniel
3: Chalabar comment not us
1: just the, that's the, the chat why well they
3: shouldn't be they shouldn't be I think it's wrong to dig him out as much as some people are doing because he was out of football for over a year. And then when he was fit again, he wasn't picked very much, uh, found himself as a sort of understudy sitting on the bench. So he's had, hes I think he's, is he 24? Is that correct? I think he's 24. He's had sort of two years out of regular football and that what that does to a young man's confidence is, you know, is something that we could discuss. But I'm sure it's it's not positive. And I think that he's starting to show signs of that imposing presence that uh, that he used to have, like when he first joined us on loan, when we, we all couldn't believe our eyes when he started playing for us in that in that year when we got to the playoff final. And he's playing in a slightly deeper role. It seems to me under Ivic in front of the back three. That means he's not going to be the player that hits. You know, a forty-yard ball into the winger, who then crosses it, and the goal is scored. I mean, that's his role. Really, is to make sure that they there are no ways for the opposition to pass balls through into the behind our back three and get in on them. So he, he's playing a slightly different role. and I thought he's he's been playing well. He played as 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 Mike said, he was playing very well against Luton until he had to go off. I was slightly surprised to see him playing yesterday because I thought he'd done his hamstring, but obviously it was just a little pull or a something or a bruise or tr- cramp or whatever it was. And he and he started again in the same vein. In the second half, when he was then coming further up the pitch and was trying to sort of get things going, his passing really let him down. There was one where I think he had Pedro out on the left and he sort of hit a ball at him yeah, and it just flew it. past him and straight out for a throw. And you're thinking, well, what's that? I mean, he hit it like he hit it like a sort of thunderbolt shot on goal. It was, there was like no player on earth could have stopped it or or trapped it or done anything with it. So that's a bit of a worry, and and maybe again there's just room for improvement. But I think we should, I think we've got a player there. We've always known that there was a player there, we just haven't seen it. It's very hard without having proper kind of behind the scenes access and talking to him and the various managers who've worked with him about why he didn't come back into the team with a bang under Pearson, under, you know, Kike, under whoever. Um, But he didn't, and he hasn't. And Ivic is, is clearly trusting him, wants him to play, thinks he's a good player playing him in a slightly deeper role and I think we just have to give him time to to get back to that level of mental strength mental confidence and and show us you know if he can show us how good he is.
2: I think the reason he does attract criticism is because he does see a lot of the ball. He is going to see a lot of the ball in that in that situation. He's going to be one of the most noticeable players in that in that midfield role. And I think you're right Colin. I think he is starting to imposing is 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 a nice way of describing it because that's what we know he can do. He can boss a game. I do think he's quite delicate psychologically. It does seem to be that he can, you know, he does get involved with opposition players when the, when the, when the, tick, when the tackles are flying in. I don't necessarily mind that. But you do wonder, you know, that overhit ball to Keena, how, how that does impact on him, whether his sort of chin hits his chest a little bit after that. But I think, I think we are, he's looking better and better. I think what I want from him is better decisions when he's on the ball and and better execution and I, and I think i think that will come with confidence but i think all too often he either hangs on to it for a, for a second or two too long and then the opportunity for the pass is gone or he mishits the pass so i can see why people are critical because what you know when it comes down to it he is making mistakes ultimately i think whether it's hanging on for the ball too long or misdirecting a pass they are they are mistakes for a footballer and they are very noticeable when you're in that central midfield role and i, I think people we just want more from him i think so i think i understand that the mistakes can be eye catching i think which is why a lot of people are, are critical of him because the play breaks down you know if you hoof it out of if you hoof it out of out of play when you're looking to hit a hit a winger you're you've given possession away and a, and, a, and a good period of play has has come to nothing so people will be sort of sat there tutting going there we go again Chalabar's fluffed another one but you know you're there to be shot at. I think in in that role, and he is coming back to he's working to get back to the, the player he once was, wasn't he? And I think hopefully, hopefully we'll get there. And I think that the signs have been positive. I just think he needs to work on that on that distribution, his timing, when to let it go, when to drive on. Because it, and of course it was difficult for all the reasons we've we've spoken about yesterday. We, we didn't get going as an attacking force, did we? So it was good to see him take the ball on and drive forward a little bit and try and make things happen. He he wasn't able to um, and that perhaps sort of focused the, the negativity around him a little bit. But yeah, I think with all of them, I think they're all learning, aren't they? They're, they're learning how to play underneath this head coach, underneath, it's a new team that hasn't really played together much at all. So they're all, um, they've all got, got to learn and, you know, him probably more so the, than anyone else because ultimately we've got high expectations of
3: him I agree with that and also we've lost some we've lost those uh, what you might call sort of leaders on the pitch people like Kapu uh, we haven't got Deni around at the moment so someone like Chalabar has to kind of step up into that role a little bit I know we've got Cleverly, and we've got Cathcart and Cabaselli there's only so much they can do playing yeah. in the back line and you need another you need these players to to start to take on the mantle of, of players who uh, consider themselves to be top Players in Europe, like I mean, like Capu, I guess, and Decoré to some extent, and and and, and Chalobah is the is an obvious candidate for that. Although I have to say, I think Tom Bashir looks like you know he's he's got the character and the personality mm. To, mm. Uh, to to become someone like that as well. But yeah, as as Mike rightly says, we just have to give this team time. It's brand new. It's incredibly youthful. Probably one of the youngest actual starting elevens. Than than any other team in the championship, and I just think they're doing okay. And I think Ivič is handling them well. They seem to they seem to have confidence in themselves, in each other. We saw that against Luton. We played some lovely stuff against them, and, and we saw it in the first half yesterday. You know, real confidence through the legs, looking up, quite nice patterns of play. Ivič has obviously got them believing in themselves, and I think he I think personally he's he's, he's doing a, a very good job under very difficult circumstances. From the rookery end
1: a podcast about life following Watford FC. Mike's surname is Parkin, he's a son called Arlo, and this is our feature, Michael Parkinson. It gives me great
2: pleasure to welcome once again to Michael Parkinson. Uh, it's Arlo. Arlo, how are you doing? Good. Good. We lost yesterday, we were talking to you on Sunday afternoon, we lost to Reading. What was your thought about that?
0: Well, not bad, because their third is out.
2: Ah, uh, now you mentioned the third kit. I'm going to show. You. So you're obviously your mark, your eye was taken away from the football by the announcement. There's a third kit. I've just opened the laptop there, and there it is. So you can see it in all its glory. What do you think? I
0: think it's very cool. It's like it's got the sort of tiger stripes from last year's goalie really kit. If you get what I mean.
2: I do. Yeah, there is a little bit of detail there. Now, more importantly, will you be wearing it? Yes. And going into the international break. How are you feeling about Watford's season so far? Good. So good third kit, good football, the future's bright, yeah? Yeah. Lovely. As always, Arlo, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your optimism and thank you for your time. Bye.
1: The transfer window uh, is beginning to close tomorrow, or today probably when you listen to this, on, on Monday uh, with the any international Uh, transfers have to be done there could be some huge amounts of uh, business to be done for Watford you don't know Uh, best to do is keep in touch with Adam uh, on Twitter at uh, Adam Leventhal Uh, he'll keep you over that as best as anyone can Um, it's going to be it could be it could be really tough but the the transfer window uh, we saw this week Mike two players go one uh, Luis Suarez um, really felt like you know, I, I never had a girlfriend. Uh, I have had a girlfriend. I have a wife. Uh, but I never had a girlfriend when there was social media. Uh, and seeing him with all the Granada players, it's like, I, whoa, you know, you've left me. We haven't had the conversation yet. And we knew it was going to happen because things weren't going <laughs> too well between us. But <laughs> here just, you are least, posting yes, shots of
3: yourself with the new exactly. girlfriend. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I just wanted you to say, you know, have a conversation. No. It, it, <laughs> and it was. It, we knew it was going to happen. So I wasn't particularly let down by that. And 10 million... I don't know what that means and it's Grenada, and we know there's different relationships going on there. So I wasn't that fussed about that. But I suppose that the one we did see go this week, early on this week, w- was Mr. Bobby P. Uh, and I suppose, well, how do you feel about him leaving at this point, Mike? Do you know what? There's a tinge of disappointment because you, you, you tend to get
2: quite complacent about having these players at Watford. You know, what did we have in the Premier League? Four, four decent years, one not so good one. And it became, we got used to sort of players arriving from Roma and Juventus and, and whatnot, didn't we? And, and just taking the time to consider the calibre of player that that Roberto Pereira was, you think, Ugh, we have dropped down a level here, haven't we? So him, him disappearing was... Was a bit of a sort of kick in the guts, really, because it's sort of just a reminder that those sort of level players aren't going to be aren't going to be tempted to to sign for us anymore. And but also with that, I do I do think that players come from Juventus to Watford for a reason. Um, I think that we probably never saw the best of Roberto Pereira on a on a regular basis. Is my is my gut. And rather negative feeling, there were flashes of absolute brilliance. some of his his goals were wonderful. I think my favorite was the was the wolves away one uh, a couple of seasons ago, but he did score some wonderful goals, and he obviously had a superb touch. My personal take it on it, and it, i've got no no internal no insider knowledge on it. I think he Fitness-wise, I don't think he was ever a hundred percent, and I got the feeling that he potentially didn't trust. He had knee issues, didn't he? And I, and I, for me, it just felt like he never a hundred percent trusted his his body to allow him to to be in full flow.
1: There was definitely a point after his injury he had with us where he was really tentative whenever he played for a good year, a really good year. But then again, he, he we never quite saw a hundred percent of him. Uh, and definitely not 100% of him in front of goal at Wembley in the FA Cup final. But anyway, what was Colin, what was your favourite Bobby P
3: moment? I think the first time I saw him, (laughs) because I thought, good Lord, he's come from Juventus, he's played in a Champions League final, and here he is at Vicarage Road, and the thing that really stuck out in that first game he played, and I can't remember who it was against, was not just his touch and his technical ability, and you saw that straight away, but I remember my friend saying to me, look at him. Look, he's tracking back, he's tracking back, and he was doing that kind of you know twenty yard run to try and stop a player or tackle a player, so when he arrived, I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, we've got a player of such high quality, but um, as we know, he got the very bad knee injury, and things sort of never was quite the same again, which is very sad for him, really as much as us but my my favorite moment was the goal he scored against Chelsea in that four one win because it was done. With such incredible deftness and joy, he got into the penalty box and he did Asper La with his eyes or some or with his shoulder and then he sort of dinked it in with the outside of his foot. And I think it was the fourth one, I think it was the last goal scored. And I was right there behind that goal and I just thought, my—I mean, it was, just, it was a moment of just pure joy. Thrashing Chelsea was just, uh, yeah... Seems like a long time ago now, John.
0: <laughs> so
3: I think the goal against Leicester for me
2: was one of the early ones, wasn't it? And maybe it was his. It was at Watford. It was at home, and the yeah, but yeah, he sort of put it in the um, yeah, but into the right. It was just curled. It just shaped it perfectly. Just showed all his all his class, didn't he? Really he thought, hang on, we've we've got a player here, and I think that was a hell of a goal in him leaving. It's just it is that it's just that reminder, like you say, John. It was accepted he was going to go, much in the way that we accepted Luis Suarez was going to go. But it in in some ways they're both very similar in terms of what of what Watford are or have been and what we need to remember we've achieved over the last sort of five six seven years during the, the, the Pozzo era you know we've had these players come in while we've been in the Premier League treated us as some sublime goals some amazing passes some lovely skill great touches genuine European performers you know European level performers I know he's not European but you know what I mean uh, and, in, and and just Luis Suarez as well we've had him in never played but has, has generated funds for the for the club so they are they're not going the way we want them to at the moment but they are a marker of where we've sort of where we're at and hopefully where we have been and hopefully we'll be able to get back. We're still, the model is working. You know, Estupinian and Suarez never played in the yellow shirt competitively, but they've generated much needed funds for the for the club to, to keep the, the wheels oiled. Uh, and also we've had, we've got the, the opportunity as Watford fans to see, like, as Colin says, players wear the yellow shirt who have played in, in, Champions League, in Champions League finals, which when you stop and think about it for a club, you know, of Watford's, you know, we mustn't always fall back on calling us a small club, but we are what we are and to have these guys turning out and scoring these sublime goals, we didn't get enough from him, in my opinion. But it, just to have him at the club, like Colin said, when you see him first, you thought, crikey, is a baller here. There's a, a proper footballer, a proper stylish, sexy footballer. Uh, and we had him. Um, and I think we we need to be grateful and not not get complacent. Because I think I've been thinking about it when I watched his highlights back. I was complacent about it. You, you, you just thought, oh, he's a Watford player you don't take the time to think he's a Watford player who's absolutely brilliant.
1: You're listening to From the Rookery End. Remember, you can subscribe to The Athletic uh, and if you do that and you download the app you get to listen to From the Rooker with no adverts whatsoever uh, it's one way you can do that but also you can get in touch uh, and follow all the stories that Adam Leventhal is writing about Watford including the, the stories we, we spoke about on our last podcast uh, the history of uh, William uh, Troustikon uh, as well as the uh, well the, the possible young player who we've signed and his story Gibrel Touré we did talk about it briefly but the details is, uh, is in the article which is now live on The Athletic. But Mike, on The Athletic, the the, the debate about how big is your football club, who is their biggest football club, was sort of put to bed. The uh, Athletic journalists looked at all the football clubs in England. They looked at the crowd size, the global global fan base, their major trophies. Trophies in the last 20 years. uh, Average league finish, player quality, commercial revenue, everything. And Watford came up as being the 36th biggest club in England and that actually met was I thought it was quite good for us, forgetting that we've been in the Premier League. The size of the the town that we are, yeah, we should be a bit lower, really, shouldn't we?
2: Oh, 100%. If you I've, I've said this time and time again when things haven't been going as well as we'd want them to, if you compare us to towns with similar historical populations, we are punching above our weight by a country mile. You know, I think Colchester at one stage was the nearest to us in terms of size. I might have got that wrong, but Colchester is a comparable town in size to, to Watford. Now, if you think about what Watford have done over the last sort of 30, 40 years, and no disrespect to to our friends from Layer Road, it's not Layer Road anymore, is it? No, but for, from Colchester, think about what they've done compared to what we've done. And that, that's what we used to be comparing us to, is, is t- towns of, of of similar size. And not only that, but we're competing with a catchment area that you could uh, just as quickly go to Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, West Ham, get a decent rail link up to to Manchester to watch Manchester City. We are competing with a lot more glamorous clubs in our in our immediate sort of um periphery if that if that makes sense, our, our immediate area. You know, the fan base is Finite at Watford, it can only ever—it's only ever going to be a certain size because of where we are and 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 who our competitors are in the, in the local area. And so, for us to be doing what we've done, rattling other teams of of massive clubs, you know, when we beat Leeds in the playoff final, for example, Leeds absolutely—you know, it's a Le- massive club, obviously, everyone knows Le- Leeds would have taken more and all that sort of stuff. Leeds would take more because they're an absolutely enormous city. Um, But we've been better than them consistently for the last 20 years. Which uh, you know we've beaten Manchester United, we've beaten Liverpool, we've beaten Arsenal, and we've competed, and not just not just recently, but uh, but under under Graham Taylor and Elton John, we competed well, well, well above our station. Well, and of course that that bloodied the noses of some football purists at the time, didn't it? They couldn't get their head round why a little provincial side like Watford was was beating teams like Tottenham and Chelsea uh, and Manchester United on a regular basis. It we upset the footballing establishment and the reason that is is because people are used to smaller clubs smaller towns knowing their knowing their role and that's never been good enough for us as uh, at Watford and and it's it's fabulous and we should must never ever forget that we're a small club in terms of the size of of what of you know the in terms of the people that we can attract the people that live nearby but we're massive in terms of what we're trying to together with with focus and pride in ourselves and and giving back to the community all Snowballs into us sort of being greater than the not greater than the sum of our parts, but bigger, a bigger entity than we have a, a right to 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 be. And I think we should never, ever forget that we've achieved it together. We've had a bit of luck along the way, but we've been we've been led by good people in a good part of the world with a with an amazing community link. And it, it's such a powerful thing. And I'm, uh, yeah, as you can probably tell, incredibly proud to be a Watford fan. And yeah, we are punching above our weight, but we've worked for it, and and we deserve it.
3: Yeah, can I just add to that? It's really funny. When I grew up, which was uh, in the sort of 70s and then through the 80s, people when football was not necessarily massively popular, but nevertheless, people say, oh, what team do you support, mate? Because... Um, I moved up to London in sort of 1981, something like that. Who do you support? And I said, I'm a Watford fan. And they always just go, oh, sorry, mate. You know, there always used to be this thing like, oh, hard luck and all this thing. And it really used to wind me up. It's like, what do you mean? I mean, you know, under Taylor, we'd, we'd, we'd done lots of, we were already doing lots of things by that time. And we'd got up the divisions and so on. And, uh, and there were plenty of, you know, Port Vale fans and Stockport County fans and other fans of smaller clubs and Colchester, as you mentioned. By the way, they play at the JobServe Community Stadium. Like well just done, to, Colin. I, I knew you'd know. Say. <laughs> but but um we and and but then in recent times you know like recently like uh in the last sort of 12 months um you're because i live in Kentish town so i'm surrounded by arsenal fans and occasional tottenham fans and they say oh, you know you and an arsenal going, no, no i'm what for fan they go no oh, i'm unlucky you know i thought you i've really enjoyed watching your team play over the last few years you know you've, you've taken some big scalps you must be really you know you must be really proud and, and that change of attitude from other football fans to what being a watford fan means is is something that we can put down to uh, the, the the ownership over the last 6 years and and the players that we've that they other other fans have seen playing for us and and a kind of you know almost every Watford fan <laughs> maybe like is not quite the word but kind of respects Troy Deeney and they they, un, they they sort of understand him as as one of our own in the sort of football family mm-hmm. and he and that has made uh, people look at Watford uh in a slightly different way rather than, oh yeah, they're the long ball merchants or, um, Oh, isn't that Elton John or something? Doesn't Elton John have something? To do? Now it's like amongst the footballing community, you mentioned that you're a Watford fan, and you, and it's not that you get respect because you know you don't really. That's not really part of what you're looking for. But you get that kind of. There's a much greater understanding. They go, oh yeah, it's a shame you got relegated. I actually, really wanted you to stay up, or I expect you'll bounce straight back. You know, you've got some good players, and, and the whole sort of attitude towards the club, I think, has changed somewhat. And that's true of the of the media also. Although of course they can't stop heaping the whole. Um, they change their managers every five minutes. But to be fair last season we did prove them right so we can't really complain about that and it's interesting that we're in the top two divisions if we're 36 we're one place above the championship drop zone which um, hopefully will be higher than that by the end of the season but I think that's about right I mean if you go back beyond the 60s obviously we bumped along in division four and division three for you know all of our history until Taylor came along, and I don't know how far back this study was done. Did it go all the way back to 1900? Yeah, it at did. So seven, did seven,
1: seven of the stats went all the way back uh, for so a very in that long case, way. It is,
3: it is amazing, really, that we're in the top 40. I mean, well, there's 20 in the the 44, isn't there? There's 20 in the. Premier League and 24 in the Championship. So we're, we're, we're comfortably in the top two divisions now as, as, as in size of club.
1: If you uh, want to read the article, it uh, is on the, Athletics, uh, on the Athletic. Remember, subscribe, make us look good by going to theathletic.com forward slash Rookerind. Uh, so who really is the, is England's biggest club? There are 16 clubs in the Championship or below ahead of us. And your little challenge now, boys, is you've got to name <laughs> five of them each. We'll start with Colin. You name one to alternate it. Take it in turns. Can you name the five clubs, at least five clubs, above us, each
3: that are in the Championship or lower? Yeah, not currently in the Premier League.
1: Yes, yeah, so yeah, all the other okay. clubs above uh, us, Nottingham are Forest. Correct, Mike. Uh,
3: Derby County. Correct,
1: both at joint twenty third.
3: Hmm. I'm just Sheffield Wednesday. Yes, they're also twenty third.
1: All three of them joint twenty third. Um stoke, yes, very high up in fact twenty second stoke yeah'm
3: mm, struggling a bit now, um oh, here's one <laughs> Coventry City,
1: no um. <laughs> you still got five five Mike, Blackburn. Yeah, actually Blackburn are incredibly high. Um but yeah. of course they have won the Premier League. Uh they are 18th oh, yeah, in yeah, the size yeah, of yeah. clubs. Uh, Queen's Park Rangers. Yes, not far above us. They are the 31st biggest club in the uh, country. Middlesbrough? Yes, of course. They're 21st, just above Stoke. Portsmouth. Yeah. They 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 are above us unfortunately. Yeah, they're below us in the league by quite a way, but they are above us 29th. Here's a question for you, though. Who do you reckon is the next club after Watford? Who is the 35th <laughs>
3: club above us? Well, the fact you you've clue. asked that question, they John, it can only be red. two clubs. They wear red. Uh, I would go for the Cherries.
1: No, Bournemouth aren't even in the top 40. Oh,
3: OK. Good. Um, well
2: Charlton red. Athletic?
1: No, Charlton are 34th. The 35th team is oh, Bristol that's not a bad city. Guess,
2: though.
1: Uh, the so Bristol City are even bigger than us. So, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> well done. Good guessing, boys. Uh, but, uh, yeah, get that article as well as everything else from the Athletic team uh, by going to athletic.com forward slash recurrent. Uh We haven't got a game for a couple of weeks. Colin, what is on Vlad's uh, things to do list then for you?
3: Well, I would say hang on to his Mailer Sar. That's number one. <laughs> uh, and also just, I mean, it, I, I do feel for him. He won't know what his squad is until the 15th of October. And the reason for that is that as we know, there is a transfer window and that's fine. And I'm I'm a big, I'm massively in favour of the transfer window. A lot of people have forgotten what it was like before there was a transfer window where every single day of every single week of every single month of the year, there were transfer stories and clubs were being tapped up and players were being destabilised in the middle of uh, seasons. And now with the window, you know, when it closes, that's it, that's your squad, get on with it. And your agent can start agitating for a move in four or five months, whatever. But... What's weird about this one is that tomorrow night on Monday, or or tonight if you're listening on Monday, at 11pm, the window closes. Oh, but no, it doesn't. And you know what? This has really, really got my goat because how it works is this, as far as I'm aware, after 11 o'clock, they cannot buy a player from another Premier League club and they cannot buy a player internationally. It is done. But what they can do is for another 11 days, they can buy players from the EFL. Now, that to me is extraordinary so they go well we're trying to get Jaden sancho uh we're trying to get so and so okay the window's closed we haven't got those. so right what well, well we can still buy players from the efl yes oh great oh let me ring up gino Potts and see if i can do a deal for his male Asar for 11 days which i find extraordinary and it's a Bit like the big greedy boys at the top, uh, who who are who are doing deals with each other and you know clubs across Europe. Suddenly they go right. Well, the only the last option for us in this transfer window is to go and raid smaller clubs in the championship and below. And I just think it's totally inequitable. How we? I mean. The only good thing and I have slightly come round to this, I have to say, because my original sort of rage when I realised what the situation was is like, okay, so we're just going to get taken advantage of. We're going to get, you know, we're going to get our players bullied out of our club by clubs with money who haven't been able to do the deals that they wanted to do first. And we're our kind of of second spot. The only good thing about it is it does rather create a seller's market. In that if you are a championship club with an asset like Ismail Assar and all these big clubs, the only place they can buy a player is from an EFL club, you are in quite a strong position at that point. because so you've got 11 days and they're going, well, we'll take him on loan. Go, no, no, you don't take him on loan. OK, what about 30 million? No, 40 million. No. So from that point of view, it might make the EFL clubs, in a, in a, in a, as I say, a seller's market in quite a strong position. But I just find that if you're going to have a transfer window, then it should be a transfer window and it should just shut at the same time for everybody because we're left exposed. And what's I know there's an international break and actually we don't play a game of football now until I think the window is in fact closed or perhaps it closes the day after. I can't remember. But um, it makes life for Ivich. In this period of two weeks or 12 days, in fact, when uh, we haven't got a game and he's looking at his squad and he keeps saying over and over again, something I really like. I only want players here who want to play here. And if they don't want to play here, I don't even think about them. I like that. That's good. That's very Jukanovic in his approach, and I admire that because that is the best way to run a football club. But the fact of the matter is he's now got another two whole weeks without knowing whether Firmini will be there, whether Peseta will be there, whether Dini will be there, whether Dawson will be there, whether these players will still be part of his squad. And that is makes it very, very difficult for championship managers, not just Ivic, but all of them, to plan the next two weeks because they still don't know... Who their squad is, and I find that astonishing, and whoever ratified this extra eleven days where you can raid EFL clubs, be it the FA or whether the Premier League negotiated it with the EFL or who agreed it, they should be you know they should be made to account for it, they should be made to account for it. Playing
2: devil's advocate, Coden, it might Please actually do. playing uh, it, it might actually work in favor. Bearing in mind the economic uncertainty around the entire game, not just at, the, uh, at our level, but but below it, you know, EFL clubs may well be struggling big time for for money in the coming weeks and months, and that extra opportunity to to sell players. You're right; it should, as always, with any transfer window, just get your business done at the start. Don't, don't everyone does the same dance year in year out. If you want a player, there's a price pay it move on that that should be the way it works really shouldn't it we know we know it doesn't work like that but to go back to the to the question what Ivic has to do and you've you've answered it there Colin it's very very difficult because what can he do when with the uh, I think our next game is at Derby County the day after both transfer windows have shut so he will have known his squad for 24 hours by the time we, we play the next game which is you know he doesn't need any us three blokes on a podcast to to explain how difficult that that makes his life but i think what will happen quite quickly is obviously with the international uh, um uh, with the international transfer window closing on monday night you're going to have su- su- potentially some players at watford who aren't necessarily that appealing for premier league players going to yes, stay that's true and yeah. so I think probably in this in this climate, we will end up with a couple who might have wanted out that will end up staying. And I think one of the big things that Ivic will have to do is manage that. So one of them, for example, is the, the, a bit of... Um, this is only only gossip, but you know, if Etienne Capoue, for example, he's only really been firmly linked with Valencia. I'm thinking yeah. with on the on the final day, things always hot up and deals can uh, lo and behold, they can find their way to to to, to getting a deal done at the eleventh hour. So it wouldn't surprise me to see Etienne Capoue go, but it also wouldn't necessarily surprise me to see him stay, largely because I don't actually think Etienne Capoue is that fussed about where he plays his football, and I don't mean that in a in a negative way as it sounds. I think he's happy. Being a professional footballer, I think he's happy earning a decent wage. I think he's happy that knowing that he will have, uh, when he retires, he will have had a very, very impressive career in the grand scheme of things. But I actually don't think the the thought of playing for Watford would upset him that much. Now, that isn't necessarily a glowing recommendation and we shouldn't really want players around the club who don't want to do it. But I, I think we could get a tune out of Etienne Capoue. If he stayed in the championship, more than that, he'd be he'd be an asset. Where in an area where we, we we've said that we've perhaps struggled, certainly in the in the Reading game. So if. If it is left with these sort of players, you know, we're using Kapo as a working case study, but but players like that, he has somehow got to ingratiate those back into the squad without going back on his word on saying that players who, who don't want to be here aren't going to be in and around the the squad. So he's got a job to do do there. So, but that's that's a a more granular result of this whole transfer window shenanigans. I think in terms of what we need on the, on the pitch, I think we need left sided. Uh, we need to sort up, shore up that left side of of defence a little bit. Um, if Kapu does go do we need another body in midfield we need to keep hold of Will Hughes I think if Will Hughes goes for whatever reason then we saw yesterday that we can all of a sudden be very very light in centre central midfield and under Vladimir Ivic I think we can't afford that we need to be very very strong the shape needs to be strong robust and we need to be able to, to ride an injury like we saw yesterday you know as Colin rightly said that derailed us effectively tom delibashiri making his first league start him <laughs> him being substituted Mackadus, we can't be in that situation too many right. times if we're going to if we're going to uh, make a success of this season so it looks like that that might be an area that potentially needs strengthening and also we need to get a grip of what the plan is up front because throughout the game against reading there was a lot of you could hear heads meeting tables saying, how are we going to score mm. and mm. Uh, you know, we, we haven't found it easy. Uh, we found it harder yesterday when we went behind. We found it harder against a side who was willing to sit in deep and let us do the running. Um, even though we did have Pedro and Star, they were happy to sort of to take their chance and sit deep and let them let us come at them. And we didn't really have the answers that we'd we'd like to see. Certainly in the second half. So sort out the left side of of defence, be solid there. Sort out the midfield. Work out how we're going to score more goals. Um, and somehow mesh together the squad that we're left uh, with when the transfer window closes on October the 15th. It's a very easy job. I don't, quite frankly, I don't know why I'm not head coach of Watford. That's all he's got to do.
1: I mean, we've been since years, Mike. I mean, why <laughs> you aren't yeah. this figurehead on imagine? a big throne at Vicarage Road? Hey, we've got a decision. Mike, could you give us the... Okay, brilliant, thank you. I mean, why <laughs> this hasn't been done, we've proven week in, week out on this podcast the great things that come out of your mouth. <laughs> thank you very much for your time, Michael. You're more than welcome. I'm off to finish off my uh, application for the head coach the job. And <laughs> um, thank you Colin. Thank you. Uh, we'll be back with some more podcasts
3: and very very soon. Can I just say one thing John? Is that we're not going to play now until the 16th of October yeah. and we've still got five more games to play in October. <laughs> That's the championship.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. Get some rest everybody.
1: Come on you all. <laughs>